Welcome to Urban Foundry. All opinions expressed by Andrew Urban, Paige O'Neill, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Collier's International, Inc. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Collier's International may maintain positions in the properties discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to the Urban Foundry podcast, your go-to source for urban real estate news and conversations. I'm Andrew Urban. And I'm Paige O'Neill, and we will be your co-hosts as we explore the future of downtown real estate. This This is Urban Urban Foundry. Today, I have an extra special guest in the studio. Nate Lalee is the Director of Client Development at the Veritas Group. The Veritas Group is an Indianapolis-based firm that specializes in versatility, open communication, and relationship building. Their team of experienced professionals from the construction, engineering, economic development, real estate, and government services industries are here to help you the client, carefully plan and implement your project while identifying and overcoming issues that stand in the way of your success. Prior to Veritas Group, Nate spent 21 years in Myronasium Construction, holding a number of senior management roles in the pre-construction, commercial construction, and business developments. He is also the founder and host of In Construction Influencers podcast, which takes listeners behind the scenes with the people and companies who are shaping the evolving development of the state of Indiana. Further, he's a board member of CYO, or Catholic Youth Organization for the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. Nate attended Western Kentucky University and earned a degree in construction technology from Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Nate, welcome to Urban Foundry. Uh, Thank you. It's great to be here today. Welcome. That's so much fun. Thank you for coming in and a fellow podcaster as well. That's exactly right. Yeah. So so let's, what, what what kind of got you started? With the podcast, right? So my genesis idea for the podcast was I am also on the Indian Construction Roundtable on a committee that puts their programs together. And when the COVID came, the pandemic came around, I was like, man, this these Zoom programs, they're rough. They're just hard to sit through. It's great people that are on them and great content, but man, they're rough because you just want to end up doing other work or you're answering the phone or taking the dog out or something because you're sitting at home. Like, well, if the pandemic is changing the way we're throwing out content through Indiana Construction Roundtable, let's change the way that we're going to do that as well, right? So let's start a podcast. And they weren't necessarily into that. And so I was like, well, I'm going to do this my own. And so I went out there and was looking for a way to do this. And so I was able to get a great producer with Chris Bangle Mm -hmm. and – he um he helped me get this through and so the idea is just to be able to talk construction and real estate in Indiana and how different companies are performing that delivering that owners what are their ideas on how they're delivering these construction projects what kind of construction projects are going on around the state even talking about labor issues supply chain issues and then i always have a couple fun questions at the end to try to help entice people to get to know them a little bit better. Sure. And so it's interesting. Well, you picked the most interesting time, right? I, yeah. I think at least in my professional experience to talk about construction, right? I mean, you, yeah. you mentioned supply chain, labor issues, inflation, right? And in the last two years, I, I don't think there's been a time, at least in our professional careers where it's been all three of those yeah, in chaos. At the same time in right? chaos. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because the labor has still been an issue. It's been an issue for a long time. But it, every episode that I talk to somebody that's in construction, I'm like, okay, what is the material that you're having troubles with in your supply chain? And it's different every single time. Wood started off 
going crazy and, and tripling in numbers, and that was slowing down projects, to where I was just talking with a facility guy at Good Samaritan, and he said it's the equipment around like controls, HVAC, and that type of thing are just ridiculous lead times to where they've got to plan around that. And so now everybody's changing the way that they're performing construction because of the lead times going into the construction projects. Well, and you spent 21 years at Meyer Nation, obviously a big name in construction in Indianapolis. Yep. And you recently, within the last, what, 18 months, moved yep. over to exactly. the various groups. Yep. What, what caused that change you so know, for I, you? I what had a what really drove good, that? I had a great run at, at Meyer Nation. Started off, I was finishing my degree at IEPY, so that's a Purdue degree. Yeah, I feel like I got to say that. But <laughs> you Purdue that. grad over here, so thank you. I, I got an MBA that. from Purdue, yeah. so I there can. you go. But you're in a good room. That, that's exactly right. So I was finishing that degree at IEPY and was able to work at Myronagium as an assistant project manager. Worked into a project manager. Ended up having the ability to start working in the interiors group, which was interior build-out, specialty retail, restaurants, even small banks, that type of thing. And a couple things happened. Some people came, some people left that group, and I was able to end up taking that on as my own division and like ran it. The 2008-2009 recession, I was like just keeping myself afloat within within my Agem and was able to grow that to, to a pretty good Size. So then I ended up taking over all of construction projects. So they have like healthcare and senior living and construction. So I had a third of their projects. And then I just liked the business development. And so then I started taking that on. So while I was doing interiors, I had all of the, I was doing the estimating, the project management, some of the supervision. So it gave me a good understanding of how to run projects. And then just over time, like the business development side a little bit more and started doing that. And then at one point just needed to go spread my wings another place. And so the end was pretty nice at, at uh, Myron Agem. They understood it was tough, but they understood. And, and so was able to join up with the Veritas group. And it's been a great run where, you know, now where I'm able, I'm able to talk to the same people, same owners, same other contractors, other vendors, but just a little bit different aspect where now we're doing more of the owner's rep mm-hmm. where we're the third-party project managers kind of helping oversee like the Meyer Agents and the Shield Sextons and the architects and that type of thing. And so we tend to know a lot of projects that are way out in the front because we're working with municipalities and owners and how are you going to deliver that project? How are you want to contract with the architects and the contractors and so it's been really it's been a lot of fun and at veritas we have a lot of different services that we Mm -hmm. can go into and work on but our main the main thing that it was kind of founded on was helping municipalities solve complex projects deliver complex projects and so that's really been an interesting niche for us because we can go in and see the municipalities that are really wanting to make these differences that they've got their city council, they've got their their mayors, their whole mayor team on the same page, and they're really wanting to make a difference. They've got some projects that they want to do, and they're really together on how they're going to do that, how they're going to attract developers, how they're going to attract businesses into their communities, and they're really making a difference. And then you can see the people that aren't, right? You can see the other communities that are not on the same page and struggling to get anything done, and it just makes it a little tougher. Well, and, and in your experience, obviously, with, with Meyer Najem and then kind of moving more forward, you know, what what has kind of been your experience seeing these municipalities? Are they getting more forward thinking, a little more proactive, some of them, it sounds like? 
where they're talking more about placemaking and things like that, where historically I've always felt, you know, 15, 20 years ago was more reactionary, right? In some cases, some, somewhere out in front, right? right? And there's plenty of examples of that. What do you, what do you kind of see generally when you're talking to these clients, you know, what, what are on mayor's minds right now? You know, what are they concerned about? How do they get these projects going? So there is, there is a couple different schools of thought. There's the ones that are really forward thinking and really looking ahead are very innovative in how they're doing that. They are making sure that they know what story they want to tell the community when they're trying to attract developers, attract businesses to their area. They're making sure that they're all on that same page of what that's going to be. So that way they get what they want. When the communities that aren't on the same page, they haven't thought through their story, they may just not know exactly what they want. And so they get whatever the developer wants, right? So if they're looking for multifamily, they may get an industrial builder that wants to come and throw an industrial building in there, right? So it's not this it's not the product that they want. We see a lot of communities that are also like making sure that they have the placemaking, they have the parks in place, they have the trails in place, they have the fire stations, they have the utilities, the you know, the schools are right around the corner, so that way they're attracting the the homes, the restaurants, the businesses, that type of thing. And so they're trying to be out there putting those infrastructure in place so that way that they have a great product to attract great people and businesses. With changing interest rates, do you see them starting to think differently about projects yet? Or is that not fully? Right? We haven't seen it yet. Right. <laughs> not yet. It's still because, you know, a lot of the projects are still in the conversation stage where they're, you know, there there's some TIFF monies that can be had to that. So it's really coming back to the developer and how the developer is going to finance it. And so I haven't seen anything stop yet, but it's certainly taken a couple more minutes to get back into line. Yeah, no, it's certainly, I think developers are very keenly aware of it right now. Right. Right. I mean, that's, that's, Keenly. it's, it's, it's amazing to say because literally we're talking a matter of 180 days, 120 days, interest rates have risen dramatically. And, you know, our, you know, our, our world takes time. It can be years yeah. process. And we're looking at projects right now where, you know, you don't even know what to write on the page, so to speak. Right. <laughs> yeah. Know, right. And at some point, I think, you know, so the way some of these projects are financed, right, partially through tax revenue, but also sometimes they're getting municipal financing, you know, in place. There's also federal funding for different types of infrastructure, right? The different capital sources and stacks. How are the proactive municipalities, you know, kind of financing these projects and approaching these, right? Like, how are they getting the buy in for some of these projects that seem pie in the sky maybe when they start? Right. But you got to start somewhere, right? You got to start somewhere, yeah. So a lot of them have kind of considered what they're at least able to offer to each developer as they're coming through. Because that's going to be at least, if it's typically not the first question the developer asks the community, it's at least the second or third. It's like, okay, what can you offer to help incentivize this? And and they do need to incentivize the project to a certain degree. So whether it's going to be a special tax or a TIF district that they're going to make, there's some version of money that they are able to typically provide to that developer. That's interesting. So talk to me a little bit about Veritas Group, uh, you know, of how did it start, right? You talk yeah. about them being kind of municipalities and helping them plan. They've grown a lot, They've you know, and I think we know a lot right. of people that have worked in different areas that have gone over there. You know, talk to me a little bit about that story. So Tim Jensen started the company 12 years ago, and he was a civil engineer. I guess he still is a civil engineer over at American Structure Point. And they were working on a project in Lawrenceburg, and and uh, he just felt like 
not necessarily from Structure Point's way, but through the whole development of a, an event center hotel project in Lawrenceburg, that he felt like that they needed a little bit more hand-holding, a little bit more direction, uh, a little bit more help making the decisions that they needed to make. And so one thing led to another and ended up, you know, he went from being on the civil team on that project to right into the owner's rep. And so he's kept the civil side, so we do some site uh, development, civil work, but then it's also that owner's rep and so helping out that community. And, and so we're in about 40 communities at this point, 12 years into the end of the company. And so we're, we just hired our 22nd employee. I was 14 at uh, 18 <laughs> months ago. So that's, that's quite good. a growth, you know, in the last time we're outgrowing our building, we got to figure out what we're going to do there and, and, and trying to figure that part out. But it's just kind of been an organic growth of where, you know, we kind of pick up another client and that client refers us to the other client. And so it's been a great model of building the relationships. I mean, it's all based on having that relationship to be able to have the answers when that community, that client calls and says, hey, I've got a problem. I don't know how to handle this. I don't even know if you know how to handle this, but let's let's figure this out together. And so a lot of times we can either answer it for them directly or we bring in some other consultants and say, you know, here, how do we do this? And so, you know, we're not builders, we're not designers other than civil, but we're typically not designing our own projects if we're owner's rep we're bringing another civil group just really for the optics we don't want to look like we're conflict of interest conflict of interest exactly so it's all in that relationship trying to help people get things done implement oh that's that's important i guess the one question i start thinking about two major storylines in commercial real estate world right the rising of industrial rapid rapid rise rise that you know still i think baffles even most senior Oh, yeah. Advisors and developers in the industry. Multifamily has gone on a, a major run, and obviously, housing, both for sale and for rent. There's a lot of community just shortages. Right. And then, and then, obviously, the I'll call it decline of the office space. And how are you seeing municipalities start to come to a reckoning? Right. Right. Because you, you, you said these are multi year visions. And so you start something five years ago, right? And you get buy in and it's get, finally ready to get baked. Right. And you go, oh crap, like the market's changed. You know, wh- what is the reckoning going on inside these councils and mayor's offices? And, you know, how are you guys educating their clients on, on how to adapt to some of this? You know, that's a great question. We do have one client and they just kept incentivizing industrial. They kept coming to us and they're like, we don't want any more industrial. We need it to be on you know one side of the interstate, one side of the city. We want to keep it over there. But we just incentivized like 4 million square feet more industrial. And we're like, <laughs> you know, you can say no to some of that, right? You, you don't have to in- incentivize all of that. If you, want it, if you want something else, incentivize the something else. And so it is that reckoning of going, oh. Just because every industrial group is coming over here and wanting to develop all this industrial, you know, maybe maybe we keep some other areas for the residential, the workforce, the re- uh, retail, restaurants, that type of thing. And so it is becoming more and more of a, okay, this industrial can spread like wildfire if we're not careful. We need to make sure that we're planning appropriately for how, you know, even even – like the truck access mm-hmm. in and out of these industrial, how, you know, where, what roads are they taking? How do they get in and out of these? You know, are they going through more of a residential area and, and creating havoc and traffic and all that? Oh, yeah. We had a trucking issue this morning down here. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, there was downtown Indy. Oh, yeah, yeah, right here at the corner at Penn in New York, at eighteen wheeler nailed the uh, one of the traffic lights. Oh no, kidding! And it created this na- nasty chain model. of events. Yeah, chain of events, obviously, right? Yeah. And it's interesting because Tuesday through Thursday, you know, traffic is much heavier coming downtown. Yeah. Than it is on Monday and Friday, right? Because of hybrid remote work, right? No one's no one's here on Monday and Friday. That's crazy. So, it, it, trying to make your corner or just head on. I don't really I don't know. know what happened. I mean, but the guy stopped. clearly missed his turn. There's a story there. <laughs> There's right? a story there. That's right. <laughs> he might not have a job after today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one question, and, I, and I, I've talked a lot about this with different developers too, right, from their perspective. How are these cities addressing the need to change, but then they have – zoning rules and restrictions and things like that were written years ago. And, you know, there's PUD, the planned unit development process in some area, some municipalities, but each municipality is a little bit unique, right? It's not homogenous town to town, city to city, right? I mean, what kind of things are you seeing them starting to talk about when they talk about adapting, right? And what, what do you think needs to change maybe with zoning? And uh, I'm going to bring up the example of single family residential, particularly at an affordable price point. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think you'd be surprised at uh, how many communities may not have zoning requirements even written. They don't have a plan for that, and so then you know then they're creating it on a fly, and then each project is a little bit different. And then you know you get a couple of those, and then it's like, okay, wait, this isn't going the direction we want. Maybe we need to implement something here. But you know, sometimes we even hear you know this is how we've always done it, which is the worst thing to ever hear, right? Um, and so I think it just takes some innovative thinking, town managers, town city council, mayors, that type of thing to be forward thinking. I mean, when Brainerd put his plans together for um, Carmel, I mean, he kind of had a vision for the whole thing. Right. And so some people are able to to look at that and, and plan all that way out and, and some aren't. And so hopefully they have a group of people around them to be able to, to do that. You know, an interesting an interesting one that I always think of is who did Holiday and Holiday Park, Holiday Housing up in Westfield and Chatham Hills, yep. Bridgewater, Steve Hankey. Yeah. Steve Hankey, yeah. Steve Hankey builds his own cities. Correct. I mean, he's coming in here and he's building his own golf courses and his own cities and, and he's got his own somewhat – P, he's got a PUD, right? That's right. Yeah, that's, the, that's that. exactly and what then he does. He's creating his own little small town, and I've always been intrigued by that. Of just when he comes in, he's envisioning what the end is, you know, in his mind, and he's able to put that in play for three or four developments so far. I've, I just find that fascinating. Yeah, and, and I think they're, the planned unit developments, right? The PUDs, the PUDs, whatever. Right? They, yeah, we're trying to. De- educate everybody on these acronyms that we use. Right. right. And you know, the beauty for a developer is it gives you some latitude. Right. You know, but that means the city also has to relinquish a little bit of control, right. To allow right. it to adapt and what that mix looks like at the end of the day. Now everyone's, everything's written on its own and every, you know, deals with it differently. I, I wonder if that's, that's more of a solution. And I think, you know, there's some communities that are much more open to PUDs some communities are much more restrictive with them and it's, it's really a, a lack of, or a lack or a, it, it, or really wanting more accountability for the developer. Right. Right. Will you explain for those listening what a PUD is? Yeah. So essentially, Nate, feel free to jump in here. I don't claim to be an expert in land use, but you know, essentially it's a planned unit development. It's essentially an agreement 
that covers certain zoning classifications to be within a single set of parcels or single parcel as kind of an overlay to the existing zoning, right? So you could have, we'll just say 20 acres in town X that is zoned industrial, but, you know, maybe a big portion of that or a certain percentage of that has to be remain industrial, but maybe there's other uses or complementary uses that the developer wants to incorporate into that area and that plan without needing to go back and get it replatted and rezoned every single deal or transaction that happens on that. At least that's my understanding. Nate, that's correct a, me if yeah, I'm wrong. That's exactly right. <laughs> I mean, the main goal is to try to not have two competing or two very different classifications in the same thing to where you're having a house and a cement plant sitting right next to each other. No, it's, it's interesting. The other piece that I was curious about is, you know, and I think I mentioned this, you know, from a residential standpoint, you know, with interest rates rising, you know, the, the affordability has changed dramatically, right? You know, I, I think back in March of 21, a $300,000 house, which is considered affordable, you know, the, the, basically the, the mortgage rate, you know, the monthly payment was about 17 or 1800 bucks, depending on your credit score. And now it's roughly $2,700. Yeah. It's a big difference. That's huge. What do you think, you know, cities need to do? And I'll take the example of the city that incentivized a lot of industrial. We see this in central Indiana a lot. And then all of a sudden they have all this industrial, but there's no workers left in the town because there's nowhere to live. What do you see? And then on top of it, you know, you're seeing interest rates go up, inflation, not abating. How do you develop workforce housing for sale. And I'm not saying affordable from the sense of lower low income tax credits or things like that, but just for sale at an affordable price point. Obviously there's some town resistance as well to some of this, their constituents going, Hey, I'd love you know this, but this is in my backyard and I don't want a bunch of yeah. cheap homes, quote unquote, not in my backyard. lowering my value or perceived value. Right. What are you guys seeing around that, right? What are the what, what are the friction points right now that you're seeing as, as towns go, I know I need this, right. but I, I don't know if I have the support when it goes right. to a council or goes to a vote because the constituents are chirping against this. Right. I think every municipality realizes that they need that, right? I mean, they need to have that just for their own workforce within their own municipality. And it's a tricky wicket for sure because it isn't like – what you said, a lot of people are like, not in my backyard, but, you know, even some of the bigger developments that are going in, typically there'll be a requirement from the city that certain number of those are being um, set aside for a workforce housing. There's probably not enough of them. So I like the idea of having their own development, having their own, even the homes, homes for rent that they can rent in an affordable manner. I've even heard some other communities in northern Indiana are like setting up temporary housing and bringing people in from out of state just to be able to to get their workforce that they need. There's big manufacturing businesses. They need more workforce. They're going out of state. They're finding them. They're bringing them in. They're putting them in these workforce housing. But it, in the long run, I, I'm curious as how that's going to work. You know, if those stay there for 10 or 20 or 50 years, what do those end up looking like? In that time, I don't. I don't know that I've got that answer, and I haven't seen it quite yet in the long run. Well, and I think it's the one thing. I think there's this reckoning going on a little bit. You know, I can because I, I think you know the more you look at it and you look at housing affordability, right? It's a huge stepping stone for the American dream, and and you can have these great jobs, but you know the other factor is a lot of these companies that 
you know, and we're seeing this in a lot of conversations because I work on the commercial side. We're having more conversations when we're running labor studies. We're looking at, okay, what is their inventory or upcoming inventory of affordably priced for sale and for rent homes in this area? Because at the end of the day, if you're, you know, making $20 an hour and you're commuting 40 minutes to work and another job comes up that's 20 minutes to work and it's maybe it's the same wage with the cost of gasoline and what we've seen from inflation, particularly impacting those folks that are tend to be at the you know lower end of the economic socioeconomic spectrum, that's a differentiator. Yeah, for a lot of those people, right? right? And and Paige, you used to, you know, obviously had a number of major management roles in Nordstrom. And notice, I did not make it plural. Thank you. I appreciate that. I've been practicing. Yeah, you know, you're hiring workers at the lower end of the wage spectrum. A change in commute is meaningful to those people's budgets. Right. You know, you see that probably in more of the rural areas too, where they're traveling from city to city and it's 45 minutes and they're trying to go where the work is, but between the gas and their wage and just trying to live on food and whatever else, if childcare, if they have that, that's a big, that's a big concern. How do you feel about the apartment complexes that are going in and they are having a set aside for the workforce and that I see a couple different ways. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's a, it's, there's usually a demonstrated need, right? So, you know, setting aside whether that's 30% of your units for 50% of AMI or the average median income, just so our listeners know, you know, a lot of times they look at affordable based on a percentage of the median income for a certain distance within the community. So if median income, and I'm just making up numbers to be really simple, is $100,000 a year median income, which would be fairly wealthy you know, suburb, 50% of AMI, meaning those units would have to be affordable to somebody making 50, a median income of $50,000, right? And there's certain rules that HUD has and different, we'll call it calculations to be able to validate that, what that means in a monthly rent figure. But I think it's a natural way for cities to easily address the problem, right? And like you said, when they're becoming more selective and they go, great, we want this great apartment project, but we have a real need in this community and some communities have woken up a lot sooner to, than others yep. to say, well, we have hotels, right? And you think about this maybe for more urban areas or more dense suburbs where you need people that are working at the hotels. You need people that are working at the restaurants. You need people that are working at the Starbucks on the corner, grocery stores, the grocery stores, right? And everyone else relies on those people. And right. I think we realized the pandemic, how essential those people are. Truck right? drivers, truck drivers, Amazon workers, right? Like the whole gambit. And sounds like, you know, one truck driver will be looking for a job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. It's yeah. pretty, <laughs> but you know, I think it's a natural, easy way for a community to sit there and say, yeah, we love this development, but you got to set aside a number of units for affordability. And it's easier to do with a multifamily project, especially depending on what your zoning is to, you know, require that. Is that sustainable? Yeah, yeah, that's another question, right? Because you know, even if you're getting 30% of your units at an affordable price point, you know, what impact is that making when you're still short, yeah. we'll call it 20,000 units or 10,000 units in a community, right? And maybe you're getting a, a maybe 50 or 60 in a project, yeah. you know, typical size, right? Because I think in, in Indianapolis, the average, you know, for a, a of scale institutional quality multifamily, you know, it's, they target around 300 units. Okay. Right, Ish, right. plus or minus, plus right? Or minus. Depends yeah. on the construction Good methods, size, yeah. suburban versus residential. It's a little different, but generally speaking, it's around 300 units, maybe, you know, two to 300 is probably a better number depending on suburban versus urban. So, you know, if you, if you had 
20% of your units, that's still not a huge number. I mean, it makes an impact. It makes an impact. And, and I think to give the city of Indianapolis some credit, I mean, obviously they've tried to require that more as they look at new projects around the urban core and on the periphery of the urban core, but it is challenging for developers. And I think the reason it's challenging is that those requirements have shifted pretty quickly over the last few years and everyone's trying to figure out the rules of the road. And I think, you know, Veritas, you probably understand that, right? Yeah, Where right, right. you mentioned the relationship between cities and developers and yeah. they, they both are in the same sandbox. They're both stakeholders with slightly different goals and objectives. Sometimes they're the same. Sometimes they're divergent. Right. And sometimes they're just parallel. Right. And I think you talked, you mentioned the communities that don't have a really good plan that don't have the zoning rules and regulations. Well, it makes it very difficult to entice a developer to come invest material capital into a project and even in due diligence just to get to, Hey, town approval. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, that can cost a couple hundred thousand dollars. Oh yeah. Sometimes I just feel like, you know, one side of the story feels like the the government is telling you, you need to do that and you got to work your performer to make that work. There is a need. And so it should be on the what the good feel good civic duty to be able to provide that, but I I feel like some developers are like well no this doesn't meet my performa that's where those goals are parallel or divergent and and you know sometimes a developer just can't make that work. But I do like how Indianapolis is trying to to push that a little bit more, and it's becoming more and more just you know the expectation you just got to come with the numbers that make this work, and and if you can do more then great, but there's at least a minimum. And at least let's make a little bit of a difference when we can. Yeah. And, and I think cities, right, and talk more about urban environments than this. I mean, this is starting to come to suburban communities as well, too. And they're, they're, they have less history and less experience addressing this. Because naturally, for most suburban bedroom communities, historically, you know, it really hasn't been a factor. Yeah. You know, right? But in cities, it has been. And, you know, in the 60s and 70s, we experimented with you know, urban housing projects, the projects, right? Right, right. And obviously that was a failed experiment in affordable housing. So cities got away from that over time because packing these people into Cabrini Green in South Chicago didn't make a lot of sense, right? And it caused other societal issues and it didn't really give people that that leg up. It it, it created some, some major municipal governance issues as well as societal social issues. And so, you know, intermixing it, right, the theorem is, hey, if we integrate this into a broader development, it doesn't feel like it's this, you know, separation separation of this institutional housing where we're cramming folks in there and we're giving them some dignity, which I think is great. I think so, too. Right? Because, you know, the working people of America, they, they, you know, they need a place to live. They need to have an affordable life. It's the richest country in the world. That's exactly right. At the same time, you know, you're right. For a lot of developers, it doesn't match their objectives or MO, and it's it's a little more unknown. And it also impacts maybe from a capital market standpoint what a reversion or refinance would look like. You know, the other piece of that too, and I've been learning a lot more about this, Nate, is is the history of you know we'll call it modern land use planning and zoning, and the impact. You know, you take Minneapolis as a for instance, right, where it didn't allow multi-unit essentially on residential plots, right? So it created this very spread out, very traditional suburban kind of lot and single family home only and very restrictive. 
And, you know, they ran into a lot of problems with affordability and these neighborhoods that, you know, for, for, for a lot of ways were kind of locked out and they've struggled to kind of address how do we adapt our residential zoning to allow for, we'll call it multi-generational families. You think about that example and historically speaking in other countries, it's more typical for parents and grandparents to live maybe in a duplex. Right. In New York City, it's very common in Queens to see multi units where the entire family lives in different units of a fourplex in Queens. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, and so there's bigger cities where this has been more tried and true, but we're seeing it in other places because that's a natural kind of reaction to the need for for that affordable housing, multi generational. And I think as interest rates rise and inflation doesn't abate, I think we have to get more creative. I totally agree. I'm not sure that I want my full family in a fourplex next to me, though. <laughs> I like them, but not that no, much. No, not that much. <laughs> Charlie, yeah. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, they're all in the same yeah, bed. Yeah, same bed. Yeah. yeah, grandma and grandpa at the, either end. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's a natural way of living. become more innovative in, in that. And that works out really well when you're in a lot of these bigger urban cities, you know, that that they should be close. They need to be close because it is a family unit and it takes a village, so to speak, to, to raise the family and be with the family. So that makes a lot of sense. So that's interesting because it, it, you always have a very interesting take. And I certainly appreciate that because you're bringing in, you know, all these different cities, Chicago and, and Minnesota and, 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 Milwaukee. Did you say Milwaukee? Maybe I just no. made um, And I'm thinking like Waterloo and Seymour and Jasper and, and, and it's interesting. Well, even, you know, I think it's funny, you know, you bring up some more agrarian places, right? right? And that's a fancy word I got to, got to nice. use today, which is good. Congrats. Um, but, you know, you think about family homesteads and the history of, you know, agrarian communities and oftentimes and it's still very common some places where single families will live on 100, 200 acres. Yeah. Right. right? Mom and dad are over on this house. And then down yeah. the street is my aunts and uncles and up the street are my cousins. Right. And so it's, it's, it sounds more uncommon, right? We've, I think we've been conditioned to think like, okay, single family home, quarter acre lot, two car garage. That is the epitome of the American kind of, that's where, I, that's where everyone lives. And that's not the, the case necessarily. That's exactly right. You know, and I, I think there's, there's some lessons to be learned, not only from other cities, but I think there's lessons to be learned from our own history that the idea of suburbia really only developed in the, really in the fifties, right? Sure. The first suburb, and I might be misquoting this, but one of the first major suburbs at the turn of the century was Shaker Heights, Ohio. Was it really? It, it was really that. kind of one of the first master planned. Yeah. I joke Shaker Heights was Carmel in 1900. Oh yeah. If that gives you a good yeah, analogy. Master plan. Yeah. So they that developed in the 1920s, the first, what was considered one of the first retail centers in Shaker square. So if, if you like urban zoning and land use, look up Shaker Heights. I will. It's, it's fascinating. And I see a lot of parallels when I first moved to Indianapolis almost six years ago, someone told me to go up to this place called Carmel. Yeah. I say Carmel because I'm just joking a little bit, but Carmel and, and to our <laughs> listeners, Carmel, Indiana, it's really hard for me to describe. And I took my father there. Right. And so my parents are, you know, Clevelanders, you know, we lived in Pittsburgh for a while. My entire family came off a boat in like the 1930s and forties, went to work in the steel mills. Right. This is like, that's their world, like kind of the rust belt. Right. right. And you, I took my dad to Carmel, Indiana. I said, dad, look at this place. And he couldn't believe it. 
Did he get sick off all the roundabouts? No, it wasn't that, but he was just, well, he was blown away. He's like, there's fountains in the roundabouts. Yeah. He's like, he got, we went down to Midtown and he's like, this is Disneyland. This doesn't look real. Artwork. We've never seen anything like that. Yeah. Every roundabout has a different sculpture. And and you mentioned kind of the Mayor Ballard's vision. Right. Right. And I mean, it's very rare to find somebody that gets 30 years of tenure. Exactly. In a city leadership position. So we have to asterisk that a little bit. Right. But it's interesting as I studied that because I wondered, how does this place exist? It's all new. Yeah. There's no, yeah, they tore down everything and built everything new. It's all new and it's all master planned and it's beautiful and it's gorgeous, right? And I I wanted to study more of it, right? So the statistics for Carmel, Indiana are, are blow you away. I have a chart that shows purchasing power and disposable income and it beats places like Greenwich, Connecticut. It beats places like Newport Beach, California. Oh, wow. You know, it's really fascinating. But then you look at all the commercial development, the billions of dollars they've been able to attract, right? And at some point, everything becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think that's a little bit what Veritas Group helps cities kind of become that self-fulfilling prophecy, lay the groundwork, attract the right, be smart about it. And eventually it has its own life. It takes, it it starts to materialize for you. And it's really fascinating because as I was researching that Shaker Heights came up and obviously I grew up 10 minutes from Shaker Heights and growing up, it was really fascinating to see. And looking back, there's a lot of parallels and it's an interesting playbook that I think a lot of cities, a Two things. What one, getting this the, the strong vision, mayoral vision, but then also having a town council or you know a constituency that buys into that vision and helps you carry that out for an extended period of time, because these projects are not two or four year cycles, right? Right. These are fifteen twenty year investments that kind of need to be continually monitored and plans that need to be consistently updated and tweaked. Exactly. And I think there's an advantage right now that we're seeing with suburbs versus urban centers, because a lot of it's what I call the white page. There's not existing infrastructure, right? So we had Andrew Molnar on and you know, Andrew really well. Absolutely. Great. And he's talking about, you know, cause I was born in Pittsburgh. I have family from Western PA so I know Yinzer country, as I like to call it really yeah. well. And we were talking about a few projects they're working on in Pittsburgh, you know, in the city and Pittsburgh's an old town and they have, you know, there's brick sewer systems in some yep. places. Yep. Absolutely. Right. And yeah. easements from railroads from 150 years ago that no longer exist that, uh, yeah. you know, you have old electrical infrastructure, you have these dense neighborhoods and a lot of it's much more tough to make these big material changes versus some of these more suburban communities where they have land still, they have ability to put in new infrastructure or newer infrastructure existing exactly. already. And it's, it's a lot easier for them to create these, these communities. Yeah. I think, I don't know. What are you, what is Veritas? Well, what is your yeah, thoughts on exactly. that? Exactly. And I've been to a lot of cities as well and, and I love the density. So Carmel put in a lot of really good density, right? You can walk in that midtown area and, and hit def- definitely a bunch of different restaurants. And, and they had, they did an infill on that, right? So they tore a bunch yeah. of stuff down and they were able to dig out and figure out where all the infrastructure was, the utilities and all that. But yeah, certainly Pittsburgh and some of these downtown Indianapolis is going to be just the same with, it's just going to be tougher. You know, they're just going to have to rework some stuff, you know, even Fisher's, when Myron Agent built their building, there was a fiber line going right through their their job site, and and nobody, the city, didn't even know 
that it was there until somebody almost tore it out. And then that, <laughs> that wasn't going to be good. So, you know, it just takes a little bit more time, a little bit more patience, a little bit more time to investigate what's underneath the ground to, to make that work. But I don't think that that should stop anybody from trying to, you know, make new buildings and that type of thing. I'm all for the historical buildings, the density, you know, just that history piece of whatever you can keep. I mean, even on the circle here in Indianapolis, they kept a lot of the facades. They might have gotten rid of the whole building, but they kept the facade so that they can have some history portion to that, which I thought it was interesting. Do you think some of the economic development tools that are being used today need to be revamped for some of those historic projects, the smaller scale projects very often that, you know, you, we, we talked about TIF, right, which is tax increment financing. And essentially, here's the theorem for our listeners on TIF, right, is that basically a city says, hey, there's this area. If we incentivize this project, either through bonds, developer-backed bonds or some other form, and basically add municipal capital to the capital stack, that their surrounding property values will rise because of this positive ripple effect and will rake in that return on that investment of taxpayer funds through that ripple effect, essentially. That's kind of the general theorem. There's there's exactly. a lot more nuance to it. Right. I'm not going to try to simplify. Right. I know there's probably a municipal finance person that's like pulling their hair out. Right. I have no hair to pull out, so it's okay. But that's beard, my that's my hair. that's my 101, you know, basic understanding of it. And and I think, you know, the problem with that program is that it doesn't scale down very well, right? Yeah, the cost right. of the transaction, right, for both the city and the developer sometimes doesn't work, right? But there's plenty of old buildings that need that major investment because I think from your construction background, I'm sure you've worked on a lot of these throughout your career. Yeah. The infrastructure of the building needs major upgrade. Yeah. And sometimes if you're changing uses, you need to make major material changes to the building, right? Things like ingress and egress for fire, elevator systems. Just even adding sprinkler. Sprinklers. Which could modify tons of the space, just the floor plan itself. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and I think... As a result, naturally, a lot of the newer construction projects gravitated toward TIF because, A, the scale is, is much more tremendous. But secondly, the scale of the projects were larger. And I think a lot of cities are trying to figure out how do we use those tools on a smaller scale because there's a lot of buildings that are suffering in urban cores right. that just need to be given a new lease on life and okay. to be activated again. But sometimes the ROI doesn't make sense. Yeah, for sure. Do you feel like um, like even our municipal leaders may need a better understanding of how to use TIF and, and when to use TIF. Like sometimes they, they see it as a broad brush and then they forget that you can get a little bit more innovative and you can create some of these other little TIF areas to redevelop some pockets of downtown. Yeah, no, I think I think there is a big, and I think there's some people waking up to it to say, we got to figure out different means and methods to use this tool. Right or or adapt existing tools to better right. address the one idea that I've been bringing up is what about using TIF financing for repositioning office buildings to be more competitive, right? So downtown Indianapolis, yeah, like we'll that. take it for instance, right? There's a lot of buildings that you know were built at a time where they were very functional and made a lot of sense. We'll say the buildings in the 70s and 80s, yeah. But then time has changed, right? Office users have changed. Office demand has changed. And they can't be as competitive because they need to redo a lobby. They need to add different amenities that tenants are demanding. And quite frankly, in the current market environment, 
the rents aren't rising very rapidly. Exactly. The tenant demand is still really weak. And it's kind of this vortex, right? It's kind of like the, you've heard of the broken window yeah. kind of theory, right? No, so if there's, a, if there's a broken, so there was a theory, I can't remember if this came out of New York or Chicago in the seventies, but they basically did an empirical analysis of, of neighborhoods that if there was one broken window, like a storefront window on a block, the prevalence of, of crime would exponentiate. Oh, no kidding. Because it's kind of like, well, this neighborhood's shit. Right. What does it matter if I jack a car? What does it matter if I throw some graffiti on this building? What what does it matter if I break another window? Right. And so there's this theory that, you know, if kind of you're driving through a neighborhood, you know, you're kind of as good as your lowest common denominator. Sure. And so there was this big push. I think it was New York where they were starting to leave board up windows, right? Which still doesn't give the most welcoming. Yeah. But there was, there was a couple programs that in different cities at different times, um, that they were basically repairing these windows because they knew that it, it led to these other outcomes psychologically. Yeah. Right. And I think about that in terms of, you know, these, these office buildings that are struggling to retain or even attract new tenants. And for the city, there's a major impact, not only on all the small businesses that serve the downtown business community, right? Yeah. Lunch, lunch spots, dry cleaners, right? Service businesses, they all rely on that foot traffic. So the less of it that's occurring, the more they hurt, right? And eventually they go dark, yeah. right? And, and then the values begin to drop and the buildings become into disrepair. And before you know it, those buildings are handed back, the keys are handed back to the bank and they're in receivership. And it, it kind of, kind of creates this vortex. And I've always thought, you know, some of these buildings, some of the upgrades and maintenance to just common areas and lobbies to make them more attractive can be 20, $30 million all said and done to make them current, current, modern, high quality, right. Even reformatting parts of the buildings, things like that could be exponentially expensive. And if the market rents in others in a market like New York or San Francisco or LA, the differential between where class A rents and class B rents are is enough to justify a lot of those investments. But in markets like Indianapolis or Cincinnati, Ohio or Cleveland or Detroit, that differential is not that large between A and B. So when you're talking about a material investment like that, it doesn't always make sense purely from a free market standpoint. So what do you think is a roadblock to to get that done, to get a TIF for an office building to redevelop in an urban politics? I think, I mean, there's the one thing is it it hasn't been – I don't think, I don't know of an example. So it's the first, yeah. right? Uh, there's a there's a broker, a commercial real estate broker in Cleveland that's put out some really interesting thought pieces. His name's Terry Coyne of Newmark. Uh, I've always followed Terry and his LinkedIn and he's always nice. posting some really interesting things. And he brought this idea up and it was kind of like a, a, a bell went off for me where I thought, well, we, we use this tool for multifamily. We use this tool for other types of mixed use, right? But what about these existing buildings? Even industrial, yeah, yeah. We use it for industrial. We use it for all these other uses. And I thought about you know some of these buildings that I know are just struggling. Yeah. And you know you talk to these owners and they you go, what's it going to take to lease my building? And I go, Jeff, ten million bucks. <laughs> They're going, well, I think I don't know. No. I don't. I got, yeah. I got forty percent vacancy, and it's it, it's getting really it's getting really tough. So I think there's some of those things I think major downtown urban cores are going to need to start thinking about and addressing and how you navigate the politics of that. Yeah. Because I think there's been a lot of bad PR in that space, you know, giving handouts, to these greedy developers that are making all this money. Yeah. And, and, and I think even politically, I think 
Because you won't find other states providing TIF in multifamily, will you? I, I thought I heard in surrounding states around Indiana, like that's not even a thing. Like Indiana, it's like it's common. Like you know, we're expecting some sort of contribution, probably in a TIF. But all the surrounding states, they don't even, it's not even a thing. No. Yeah, it's, it's far less common. It was one thing that blew me away when I first came here and started learning more about how these deals are structured. There's there's much more uniformity in the state of Indiana, right? Which is good. Yeah, well, I, I think it is good. Well, maybe you can just turn some of these opportunity zones into that. I mean, just call it something different and fund it in a different manner. Yeah, um, I think well, opportunity zones kind of came and went, or sunsetting feels like. I don't hear much about them anymore, but maybe you take that and, and use that as an opportunity. Yeah, no, I think I think opportunity zones were well intentioned. And I think there's been some good examples right down the street, 421 North Penn, that project is okay. an opportunity zone fund that did that project. And it's going to have a really awesome impact. The quality of the construction, yeah. things like that are, are very nice, but it wasn't, I don't think it took off as much as a lot of people thought. I think there's a lot of promise in it and I think it was on the right track. Yeah, I do too. You know, and I think it, there needs to be another iteration. And I think even local communities need to figure out how do we create smaller scale programs like this that can leverage people that want to avoid the tax man, but reinvest in their community, reinvest in the community. Yeah. You know, and I think that's, that's the other thing. And the other piece of that too, is I think, you know, there's, there's other societal things that cities need to figure out how to address as communities around services, around mental health services, around homeless, you know, kind of engagement services to be able to really, I hate to use the word clean it up because it, it, yeah. it kind of, because yeah. a lot of those people are really struggling and they shouldn't be treated like this ill. Right. You know, and no, that, I, I guess that. that's the, the compassionate, good Catholic schoolboy coming out and there you go. Right. That's right. Social justice. I'm, I'm right there with you. Yeah. I know that's what all three of us have in common. That's right? right. You know, but I, I think about that there's ways to do it with compassion. There's do with dignity uh, and honor for those people and, and maybe give them opportunities in life. But the truth is, is it's a very complicated tapestry right. to be able to do it. It's not just one thing, right? It's not just addiction services. It's not just a house to live in. It's not just a job. These are very complex, complex issues right. because people are complex. Right. So we'll see. I am hopeful. I, I see more. I see more cities at least inviting conversations. But it takes time. It takes time. Time and education and, and having the resources for those programs to at least start helping substance abuse and mental health and that type of thing are important. And not just not just people that are down on their luck and, and homeless, but you know, all of us could probably use some of that help every now and again as well. So that's right. We need to make sure those resources are available. Yeah. So Nate, we have a few questions we ask all our guests. Right on. You can doesn't have to be business answers, but all right. All right. What is what are you streaming right now? What what are the go tos um, at home on Netflix or HBO Max or Hulu? What are you watching? Um, yeah, so you know, as we're recording this, it's October, and yeah. so it's Halloween. So American Horror Story is is a good one. My family hates the fact that I watch scary movies all the time. They don't <laughs> want to watch any of them, and so they all go into a different room and I watch some scary movie. And so American Horror Story, and then. Have you ever heard of the show? It's on Hulu called Letter Kenny. No. Oh. It's about a it's about a, a town in Canada called Letter Kenny and basically starts off as it's a comedy sitcom 
and it's 5,000 people and these are their problems and there's a group of people that they follow around. It's completely immature humor, which fits me really well. And so <laughs> my wife hates that one as well. And so whenever I turn that on and, she, and she so they're, uh, the room and yeah, something and, and else. so yeah. there, it's just a bunch of uh, people making fun of each other and, and it's Canadian humor, which is absolutely <laughs> hysterical and calling each other names and stuff like that. So it starts off with, this is intended for mature, mature audiences only. only. And my wife's like, you're, you shouldn't be watching this. I'm not sure you're mature, <laughs> mature. enough for that. Does so, anyone watch The Watchers? The uh, we started that. We okay, started so that. I don't do scary things, and I'm only on it's, episode two. And I was because my brother told me to start watching it, and I'm like, "Is this like something I'll be able to fall asleep?" Yeah. After watching it, and the verdict is still out. It's suspenseful it's, for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. Add it to your list, Andrew. Gosh, all these recommendations. I don't have the time. Of the yeah. Day. <laughs> yeah. What is so? What's your favorite restaurant right now? It can be in Indianapolis. It can um, be anywhere. Where, what are you hooked oh, on? Man. I, I like going out to eat, and, and that's always a good thing. So it just really depends. I, I feel like I got a lot. Like Fat Dan's yeah. comes to mind Page with, their, with their wings. <laughs> yeah. A half liter mm-hmm. and Southern Bar- – it's like yeah. all in that same so area. Yeah. Barbecue, 317 Barbecue and Broad Ripple is really good. Ale Emporium Wings. You're so a wing I, guy. I, I, apparently, yeah, I'm a big. wing guy. Yeah. That's Puccini's Pizza. Is, is one of my favorite pizza places. Where's Puccini's at? Puccini's is, uh, there is a ton. I think it's nationwide. They sometimes go by different names. At IU, they had some other name. Their ranch is off it's the charts. It's like 82nd and Dean Road on the north side. Oh, okay. There, it's just a little shop in there. And uh, yeah, the ranch is awesome. My wife gets mm-hmm. like a big thing of ranch mm-hmm. every time we go. And sometimes we'll just go in and buy ranch. But yeah. And, uh, you can't, you can't and, carry out their ranch. I know that from experience. Come home and have a salad with the yeah. ranch. And so it's it's pretty cool. But I feel like there's a lot of restaurants that are around. The Meridian, even Some Guy's Pizza is around. Capri has, mm-hmm. is great. So, yeah, that's kind of... That's your rotation. That's my rotation. So I think you can figure out where I live just by, yeah. you know, yeah. making the two-mile yeah, two two mile ra- <laughs> two radius of some of that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so I don't know that I have, like, one. I got, I got a lot. You just like, got a rotation going I on. Got a, yeah. That's good. What are yours? Okay. You know, <laughs> it's, that's a good question. So I, I get... There's a new up at, like, 82nd. I'm trying to name the place. It's a new Middle Eastern place we go to a lot. Just getting, you know, uh, shawarma, euros. Nice. They have it all. Uh, They have these really good dolmas, which are the stuffed grape leaves. Oh, yeah. I love those. My boys love those. We eat there a lot. We eat... Oh gosh, what's the name of that pizza place up in Fishers that we love to go to? It's it's like 25 minutes from my house, but it's really good. It's um, uh, Passione Pizza. Oh, really? Yeah. And it's really, it's like authentic, you know, it was, I, th- I think it's new owners now, but previous owners were from Italy, amazing breads. Now we live not That's far awesome. from you. We live right by cathedral actually. Okay. Yeah. So, so not quite so bro, but like yeah, about seven, 10 minutes from there. Yeah. It's a great area. Um, so great area, but we cook a ton Good. at home. Good. Yeah. That and the smoker, I got the Traegers out back. Very nice. And so I, I tend to just cook at home all yeah. the time. Good for you. Right? So. I got the big green egg. I'm a big green egg guy. I want to get one of the Blackstone flat griddle. 
My husband bought one of those. Deals. And yeah. it's like 75 pounds. <laughs> Got to lug it around. And it, it currently around. sits on my dining room table because there's nowhere else to store oh, it. Because yeah. it's gigantic nice. and yeah. heavy, so you don't want to move it super far. Right. But it doesn't get used as often as it should. Yeah. You, should you need like one of the, the little. Deck. I know. He's like, wait till I make the girls pancakes on Saturdays. I'm like, they're seven months old and two. But yeah, they don't care. Yeah, they don't care about pancakes. Yeah, watch a lot. Half the time you make things for your little kids, and they're like, I don't want to eat this. Exactly, dogs are eating it. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, I made forty pancakes and the kids (laughs) ate two. Yeah, right. It's just like, what do we do with the red? Freeze them. Popsicles. And you're like, okay, well, I have popsicles again. Yeah, exactly. So I want to get that and have then the big green egg, the regular barbecue grill and then all right we're coming over for wings then, at your house yeah that's exactly and, and pancakes. yeah there you, there you go, go. what do you podcasts or books what what, what is kind of in your your arsenal right I now like, audio books uh, whatever um, I, I i listen to a lot of different podcasts i listen to bigger pockets podcast mm-hmm. so it's around real estate and then they've got three or four other ones that are in there how i built this is one from npr that's really cool mm-hmm. it goes about uh, how companies started so it takes an entrepreneurial spirit and, and it takes that owner and it talks about how they started so like Five guys, um, five guys burgers. They had the owner of that on, and how he went from like just some little shop in in New York, and had five brothers, and they all started, and how they decided just to do burgers and fries. That's the main thing, and they wanted good meat and that type of stuff. So it's just always a really interesting program that way. I always read a lot of like sales and inspirational books as well, and so I'm always reading something. That's good. That's good. All right. Well, last question before we have to wrap. What is the song you're hooked on right now? Oh. What's like, what's your go-to, whether it's Apple Music, Spotify, what's yeah. that song that gets you in the right mood? Yeah, it's usually something from the Zach Brown band or Chris okay. Stapleton. Is, uh, That's your go-tos so, right now. Those are my go-tos, yeah. Those like are it. usually the ones that drive down the road with the windows open and singing as loud as I can. <laughs> nobody <laughs> likes to hear it. I'm not a singer, so nobody. Those are good ones. How about you? What's your song? You know, I've been really big into the new, new DJ Khaled album. Oh, really? That just nice. dropped. You nice. know, God, uh, God Did by uh, Rick Ross, Jay-Z, DJ okay. Khaled. The beat is just banging. I, I've just listened to the new Freddie Gibbs album. I listen to a lot of hip-hop um, and a lot of jazz. Nice. I'm a big, I collect uh, vinyl jazz. Very nice. So I have a huge collection of that. So it's either that or it's it's like hip-hop most of the time. So that's just... Very nice. This was me. I'm adding uh, it's banging to my. It's banging <laughs> to your repertoire. <laughs> to my repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> gonna start saying that. All right. That's we'll good. To Chris Stapleton. It's banging. It's banging. It's banging. That's by Chris Stapleton. <laughs> no, no. No. I was like, well, <laughs> different name, but hey, go go with it. <laughs> Well, great, Nate. Thank you so much for coming by, man. It's an Andrew, honor this to has have been awesome. you. I'm glad, hopefully, yeah. you had some fun. I, this has been a lot of fun, Paige. It's great to meet you, and this has been you a lot too. of fun. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate it. And everyone listening, please listen to In Construction Influencers. I-N, I capital I-N, yeah. Construction Influencers. Right. Nate Lell, the, the amazing man you just heard, right is, on. is the host. How right often do you guys drop in episodes? About every other week. I, I took a little bit of time okay. off, but I'm back to about every other week. All right, and you can so, get yeah. that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, yeah, like all your major you outlets, yep. right? Yep. All right, check it out, everyone. Nate Lowley, thank you for so much for coming on, man. Have Thanks, a great Andrew. day. Thank you. Thank you to our executive producer and audio wizard, Chris Spangle at leadersandlegends.net. Also, thank you to my co-host and producer, Paige O'Neill. And finally, 
thank you to Colliers International for providing us space to use as our recording studio in downtown Indianapolis. If you like what you heard, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to like or follow us on LinkedIn and YouTube at Urban Foundry Podcast.